to give God and His Word our full attention. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at the 14th verse. This is one of a series of examples that Jesus gave as to what God's kingdom is like. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. For the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not Even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you be seated, please? Most of you know Bob Klima, but Bob's a guy who loves God's word, speaks clearly, communicates well, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be listening to him rather than speaking this morning. So thank you for sharing, Bob. told Tim it's my job to be a baseline to kind of so that when he comes back he'll look really good by comparison. (laughs) The parable of the talents for a long time really didn't seem to make much sense to me. And I think one of the reasons why it didn't is the way it's set out in our English Bibles. If you look at the 25th chapter of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, there appears to be three distinct stories. That's the way it's set out, each one with a subtitle. And that's unfortunate in many ways because it leaves you with the impression that you can read it alone and understand it, whereas really the parable of the talents comes right in the middle of a very long uh, narration. In fact, the entire 24th and 25th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew 
is one long narration by the Lord. So to understand it, I'd suggest that we need to know what comes first and what comes afterwards if we're going to understand really what the Lord was saying through this parable. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the 24th chapter then. At that point, we have this scene where Jesus is walking by the temple with his disciples, and the disciples look at the temple and they say, wow, what a beautiful building this is. And Jesus answers them, saying something they did not expect, which is usually what Jesus did. He said, you see that building? I tell you, not one stone will be left lying upon another. But to the credit of the disciples, the question they asked him next was really a pretty good question. They said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so all of the 24th and 25th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew is the answer to that question. Excuse me, that'll show up great on the tape. So in... Chapter 24, the Lord goes to great length to describe all the terrible things that are going to happen in the end times leading up to the second coming and the great judgment day. All the wars and rumors of wars and all these sorts of things. And after he goes through that, he says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So just as people in Noah's day just went on from day to day living their normal lives, thinking that everything was fine, and all of a sudden, pow, comes the flood. Jesus is saying it's going to be exactly like that when he comes again. People will be living what they think are their normal lives, and all of a sudden, it will come upon us. As he says elsewhere, the Son of Man shall come like a thief in the night. And so the Lord is describing that, and then he makes this extremely important statement that really all of chapter 25 is an illustration of verses 45 and 47 near the end of chapter 24. And there he makes this statement. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. I'm suggesting the parable of the talent should be understood as an illustration of that statement. Who is the good and faithful servant who has taken care of the needs of his fellow servants? Now notice this phrase, put him in charge of, does not mean authority or control over. It means responsibility and provision for or to take care of. Now, that being said, in the 25th chapter, we have first the story of the ten virgins and their lamps. Then we have the story of the talents that was just read this morning. And then we have the story of the sheep and the goats, which appears to be three different stories. But if you look closely, it's really only two. 
because the beginning of the first parable there, the one of the ten virgins and their lamps, begins with the phrase, and the coming of the kingdom of heaven shall be like. And then after he tells that story, he begins the parable of the talents, and he says, again, it shall be like, introducing another illustration. But at the end of the parable of the talents, and before the story of the sheep and the goats, there is no such transitional phrase. He does not say, again, it will be like, or words to that effect. In other words, it's one continuous narrative, and it has to be understood in that way. Now, before we look at what comes after the parable of the talents, let's take a closer look at the parable itself. The first thing that I think that we need to notice is to be very, very clear that this is a story about money. It's so easy to look at this and think, well, this is about our time or our abilities or something else. Well, in a secondary sense, it is. But primarily, it's about money. A talent was nothing more than a measure of money in Jesus' day, roughly the equivalent of $1,000 in uh, modern currency. So from now on, I'm not going to use the word talent. I'm going to say $1,000 so that we don't get confused. In fact, we only got the English word talent from this story, not the other way around. So in the story, the master takes his money and he gives it to his servants. So it's extremely important to be clear about the fact that it's the master's money. It is not the servant's money. This is what we call the principle of stewardship. It's the recognition that everything we have really is God's and nothing we have is really our own possession. Now, that was a pretty radical idea in Jesus' day, and it's a pretty radical idea in our day because we tend to take great ownership of what we think are our possessions. But if you really stop and think about it, I'd suggest to you that nobody ever really owns anything. Ownership itself is an illusion. Really, all we have in this life are temporary rights of possession. Things pass through our fingers like water pours through our hands. It's merely a temporary possession But God cares very much what we do with those possessions while they're in our hands. Third, notice that God gives different amounts of money to the three servants in the story. One $5,000, one $2,000, and one $1,000. And the passage says that he does so according to their ability. So there is a difference in terms of what the Lord has given to us And our ability to manage it is part of why God gives different amounts to different people. Now, there is a great risk, it seems to me, for people who might have been given the $5,000 or its equivalent to take pride in that fact and to say, well, you know, I earned this, I worked hard, I made right decisions, now I've got this more money. All of that may be true, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still God's money and it was still given to us. But there's a great danger there because the people who have the larger amount of money tend to be more possessive of it. They tend to think more that they own it. They tend to have a harder time parting with it. Some of the richest people I've ever known have been the least generous, but some of the poorest people I've ever known have been the most generous. Now notice that the first man in the story immediately goes about 
investing that money, uh, and he does it with energy. He does it with purpose. He says he does it right away. And we're told that he traded with the money, which I think implies that he put a lot of thought and purpose into what he was doing and how he did it. And the second man did the same thing. They knew the time was limited. They knew that they didn't have to, they couldn't just be idle about it. They couldn't make excuses. They couldn't say this was something I was going to do at some point in the future. They were uh, energetic. They did it right away. They were purposeful. They went out and they invested the Lord's money. That shows a certain cleverness. It shows a certain consciousness. It shows a certain thought about what it is that one is doing. Now, the third man, on the other hand, he's an interesting character. And we learn later on that the reason why he just hid the money in the ground is because he was afraid of the master. He thought the master was unjust. He thought the master wasn't fair. How could you give this money to one person and not to another? How could you reap the rewards of my work? And he had all kinds of other such thoughts and justifications. So as he went through all the machinations in his head, you see what it did? It paralyzed him. It kept him from taking any action and doing anything with the money that had been entrusted to him. And that's the primary difference. How many people in our world today think God is unfair? who think that everybody should be given exactly the same amount. Many people in our political process try to make such things happen. Well, then we're told in verse 19 that after a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. Now, remember, read this in context. This is the judgment day. This is the second coming of Christ. This is the master coming to settle accounts. He is saying to them and to each one of us, at some point when you don't know when it is, I'm going to return and I will settle accounts with you. I will want to know what you did with my resources when I return. Now look at what happens to the first two servants in the story. They receive lavish praise from the master. He says, good Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will put you in charge of much. And notice that he says exactly the same thing to the man with $2,000 as he said to the man who was given $5,000. In other words, the amount of the money did not matter. It was the faithfulness that God was looking at, that the master, of course, represents God in the story, the faithfulness that God was looking at. It doesn't matter how much, He wants to know what our heart is and what we have done with what he's given to us. And he says, come and share the master's happiness. And then he says, more will be given to us and we will have an abundance and we will have authority over more things. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about what the next life is going to bring. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't entirely wrap my head around what that's going to look like, and it it doesn't matter, but I'm sure it's going to be really great to share in the Master's happiness and to have an abundance and to have authority over things that happen in the heavenly realms. Wow, can you begin to comprehend what that is all about? And then lastly, the judgment on the third man is really quite terrible. It's really quite terrifying. It's something nobody wants to talk about. 
But Jesus is very blunt about this. And he's blunt about it in the stories that comes after the parable of the talents as well. So what happens immediately afterwards? We read this in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations of the earth will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this is the judgment day that he's talking about. And what, what is the measure that he uses when he separates all the people of the earth into these two great categories of the sheep and the goats? Well, he tells us precisely, but before we even answer that, please notice that the things he's going to say are not the causes It's not that you do something and therefore you receive salvation. These are examples of or indications or signs of what a person has done, their faithfulness and where their heart may be. So in that context, what does he say? He says to the people who are set aside as the sheep, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he looks at the other group of people, the ones whom he calls the goats. And the opposite is also true. He tells them... I tell you the truth that whatever you did not do for one of these, you did not do for me. So here is the meaning of the parable of the talents. That God has given us a certain amount of money that belongs to him and we are stewards of it and we have a responsibility as servants to look after the needs of the fellow servants of the household and we will be judged by that by how we take that money and invest it in people. And specifically, what type of people? Well, there are six that he mentions. They are the hungry, the thirsty, strangers, the naked, the sick, and prisoners. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. He isn't saying there are only six categories of people. But he's saying all people who are like these six. Now, what do these six categories of people have in common? Well, I'd suggest that what they have in common is that they all have a genuine need. Not a manufactured need, not a perceived need, but a genuine need. And remember, this is all in the context of that statement, who is the faithful and wise servant who took care of his fellow servants? Notice that he's talking about fellow servants. Notice that he says these brothers of mine. Jesus never used those terms lightly. Jesus didn't have some new age sense that everybody on earth is his brother, la, la, la. No. He had the sense that some people belonged to him and some didn't. Some are sheep, some are goats, some show these signs in his life, and some don't. So we need to invest in people wisely, purposely, 
and with planning. So, if the story of the parable of the talents shows people multiplying the amount of money which is given to them, how are we to understand that? Well, consider what the Lord said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, where he said, Give, and it shall be given to you. Not, it will be given to you, and then you go give, but give first, and then it shall be given to you a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, the greater the generosity, the greater the blessing. Now, we see a similar thing in the book of Malachi, where the prophet is talking about the failure of Israel to give money in accordance with the Mosaic law. And in that context, he says... Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. As far as I know, this is the only time in the Bible where God ever says, test me in this. He said, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. So God promises that if we invest wisely in people's lives, he will pour out blessing in response to our doing so. So, how do you invest in people's lives? Well, before I answer that question, let's look at a few statistics. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money than he talked about any other subject? And he told his disciples that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And we're told that when they heard that, they were astonished because people couldn't understand it. But he tells us in this and many other passages that wealth can be a real hindrance to a person's spiritual life and that real freedom is found in releasing wealth, not in clutching onto it, which can kill the spirit. Consider what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Did you know that there are twice as many verses in the Bible about money as there are about faith and prayer combined? By one person's count, there are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. Now, If an alien came to Earth from Mars or some such place and tried to understand what was important to us by looking at, oh, say, for example, our television commercials, what conclusion would he come to? Well, he'd come to the conclusion we carried a great deal about luxury items and about self-indulgence and that those were the things that drive us. Why do we have so many commercials like that? Because they work because the people who are trying to make money understand that there's something in us that wants, that craves these luxury and self-indulgence kind of things. 
Did you know that 80% of divorced people indicate that financial issues played a primary role in the ending of their marriage? Did you know that the average charitable giving among those who attend church regularly in the United States is just 3%. Dr. Richard Halverson said the following, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single topic because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. In other words, do you want to know what's important to a person? Just look at what he does with his money, and you will know where his heart is. You will know what's truly important to him. Now, it's not my purpose today to talk about financial planning Yes, the Bible does say we have a high responsibility to take care of ourselves and our families so that we won't be a burden on anybody else. And I believe that that implies sound financial principles such as saving money, preparing for our own retirement, and all those sorts of things. But there is a danger here. There is a danger that you can think so much about those things that generous giving suffers as a result. Don't forget the parable of the rich fool. Remember that Jesus also told the story of the man who worked very hard and stored up everything that he thought he would need for the rest of his life, stored it away in barns, and then relaxed and said, now I can relax, now I can eat, drink, and be merry, for I have enough stored up to last me for the rest of my life. And what did Jesus say to that man? You fool! This very night your life will be demanded of you. We need to live as if this very night our life is going to be demanded of us because it might be. So we don't want to die with a bunch of stuff in barns. Lots of people do that. So I want to challenge us to think differently about the whole idea of giving. I want us to think what it means to invest in people because I think that's what he's talking about in the parable of the talents. When he says the man diligently went out and invested this money, if you read this in the context of the story that comes afterwards of the sheep and the goats, I think it's a reasonable understanding that what he is saying is he wants us to take the money that is entrusted to us and invest it wisely and purposefully in people. Now, how do you do that? Well, there are lots of different ways. I was having a conversation recently recently with a friend of mine, and I was telling him that many times we have taken teens and adults uh, on mission trips to Jamaica to work at the orphanage for very, very poor children with uh, uh, special needs, and that people have said to me afterwards, teenagers particularly, now I know what I want to do with my life. I want to be a special education teacher. I want to be an occupational therapist. Before I had this experience, I didn't know, and it changes the whole course of their life. So I was telling him this, and he immediately said to me, well, what's the cost of sending one teenager on this mission trip? So I told him. He immediately wrote a check and said, here's enough money to send two kids on this mission trip. 
He was investing in people. Now, he doesn't know, and I don't know, what the impact is going to be in the lives of those two people who are going on this trip because of him. But God knows, and I'm sure it's going to be great. One of the ministries our church supports is Young Life. Every summer, Young Life takes teenagers to a camp where they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they receive discipleship, and it changes their lives. So, send a kid to Young Life camp. There are also foreign missions. The people in Jamaica, the people in Kenya, the people in Lebanon, there's a number of people that this church supports who are brothers, who are fellow servants, who are living under circumstances we in the United States can't very well relate to, who have great and substantial needs. Help them out. They're fellow brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where they live on this planet. The primary sense that you get as you read through the New Testament is that the primary giving and generosity is local. It's where people live. But there are examples that go way beyond that, where a collection is received and then sent to the suffering brothers in another city. That's essentially what we do when we support people who are in other places. Consider what the Apostle James wrote when he said, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and be well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? I challenge that we all ask ourselves how often we've done something kind of close to that heard about a great need and said, well, good luck with that, or, you know what, I'll pray for you, when we might have had the actual means to meet the need ourselves. But you see this, again, in the book of Acts, and you see it other places, where somebody in the church, a believer, a fellow servant, has a need, and other people just generously say, oh, please, let me meet that need. I have the ability to do it here. The joy, the, the inexpressible happiness that is spread by simply meeting another person's real needs is one of the greatest things that we miss if we get all tongue-tied like that third man in the parable and we don't know what to do with money. Invest it. God promises to bless us when we invest it in people. And we've been given the responsibility and the great freedom to make these decisions on our own. Yes, it's great to give money to the church, and the church uses it wisely in the way that it's spent. Yes, it's great to send money off to a charity. But you know, there's a certain separation when you stick a check in an envelope and put it in the mail. Giving is more personal in the New Testament. It's more people immediately meeting somebody else's need. Not that there's anything wrong with doing those things, but... Let's try to make it more personal. Let's try to look at who has a need and meet that need personally. Now, one hindrance to this, I think, is a lot of people think of what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But he's talking there about not announcing on the street corner what you've done. He isn't saying that the person you actually give the money to should not know where it came from. In fact, the normal model that I see in the New Testament is that personal giving from one to another. Nobody else has to know about it. 
But the recipient and the giver, each knowing about it, I suggest, can produce a kind of oneness, a kind of lifelong camaraderie that almost nothing else can cause. The power, the power of using wealth wisely instead of storing it away or burying it in a hole in the ground can absolutely transform our lives if we allow it to do so. So let's all ask ourselves, how does God want us to take what he's given us, be it little or be it much or be it anywhere in between? How does he want us to be faithful for caring for our fellow servants with what he has entrusted to us? And let's challenge one another to be cheerful givers and to develop a greater and greater generosity. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take these words that we've considered today, the parable of the talents and everything that you said in the 24th and 25th chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and that you would, by your Spirit, transform our lives, that we would be truly generous people, that we would be people who genuinely care for one another. As you said, they will know us by our love. Let us show our love one for another by how we care for one another. Let us be creative and energetic and understanding in the way in which we invest what you have given us into the lives of others, that you may be glorified, that your joy may be spread, and that your people may be cared for. In your name. Amen.